The Fanny Pack is back, Jack. That's right. We are bringing you another Dave 5 Fanny Pack here this week on Kicking Out at 2. I am your host, Dave Rosenluth. And this week, we're bringing you a Fanny Pack as I'm flying solo. I got nobody to talk to except to all of you. And thank you so much for hitting that download button and listening to me jibber-jabber about random topics in the world of professional wrestling history. And before we do all of that, let me remind you all that we are on social media. We want you to join in the fun on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com forward slash kicking out it too. You can hit that like button if you haven't already. If you have hit the like button, tell a friend, tell one, tell all to hit the like button and to be a part of all the retro pro wrestling fun that's going on over there on our Facebook page. Links to archive shows. We've been doing some polls, some questions lately, trying to get the uh, feedback from all you guys as to what you want to listen to, what you want to hear us talk about. Uh, we got pictures and GIFs and memes and all that great stuff going on over there on Facebook as well as our Twitter. Twitter handles at kicking out to k-i-c-k-n-o-u-t and the number two and if you want to hear more of this show kicking out at two on multiple podcast platforms and head on over to the retro mania pro wrestling podcast network over on podbean by searching retro mania with a w that's right we are part of that great network over there I've been going strong for almost a year now and we got some great shows and are part of that network like hulkamania is dead gaijin wrestling radio marking out the days weekend warriors season one um, this show kicking out at two origins of attitude, another great bonus content we got going on over there. Um, we actually just recently did a, um, uh, a request for, for a listener. He wanted us to do a watch along and we did a watch along of an episode of primetime wrestling. So if you guys got requests, any topics you want to hear, any shows that you want us to do watch alongs of, then by all means, hit us up in the DMS on Facebook and Twitter and, uh, let us know what you want as a part of your listening pleasure here on kicking out at two. And, uh, like I said, all the great podcast platforms that are available that you can check this show out and all the great shows of Retromania on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.com too. That's another spot where we originated the home of the, the first home, I should say, of kicking out it too. So you can find all that great stuff over there on the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. All right. So this week, what's in the fanny pack, if you will? We've got five random topics in history that uh, in wrestling history, I should say, that we can't really get into in long form and dedicate an entire show to. So why not just mash them up, throw them in the fanny pack, open it up and see what we got. So without further ado, the first topic in the Dave five fanny pack for, um, this week here. Um, let's begin with, um, let's begin with a guilty pleasure of mine as I've gotten older an individual who I didn't appreciate back then in the, in, the, in the mid to early 90s, but somebody who I've enjoyed watching more now, going back watching some of the older stuff, and that's Savio Vega. Um, when I was a youngster, um, I didn't really think much of Savio Vega. Um, I didn't think he was terrible, but he just didn't resonate or connect with me as a viewer. And so um, seeing him as like Razor Ramon's little sidekick, um, kind of like, you know, the replacement sidekick for the one, two, three kid when one, two, three kid would turn heel on razor in 95 and join the million dollar corporation. Um, just didn't really connect with me. Um, I didn't really buy the fact that he was, you know, a finalist in the King of the ring tournament that year in 1995 against Mabel losing, um, just didn't really see it. And so um, didn't wasn't able to appreciate what he had to offer um, as as 
a youngster back then. Um, but as time went on, um, I, I grew an appreciation for him little by little with little instances. Um, for instance, uh, the, the Caribbean strap match he had with Stone Cold Steve Austin at Beware of Dog 2 in your house um, in May of 1996. You can find that on WWE Network. Um, that was a, a, a fantastic match, a lot of fun. Uh, made me really care about him um, at that point in time, um, even though back then, like, you know, I was a, I was a flip flopper. I was channel surfing between Raw and Nitro, so I really couldn't you know pay attention to one product as a whole. And so uh, maybe that's a part of why I missed out on um, what I would like to consider um, the greatness that is Savio Vega, a hidden gem, if you will, in wrestling history. So. Um, yeah, I mean, th that was the beginning of my appreciation for him. And then I guess I guess you could say um, as it grew, it, it, it became um, what's the right word for it? Um, prevalent uh, when Savio Vega, not when he joined the nation and not when eventually he would form the Los Barricos, but when Savio Vega ended up um, having a really really strong showing in the brawl for all tournament against draws um those two guys just beat the dog shit out of each other and i was just i was just thoroughly impressed and i thought that um you know th that could have been a launching point for something better for him because at the time you know that was summer of 98 i believe um and they, they had, I believe they had started to phase the Los Bariquas out. You didn't really use them a whole lot. They weren't spotlighted on WWF programming at that time. It was Attitude Era. It was in the height. Austin, Rock, DX, Undertaker, Kane, Mick Foley. The list goes on and on. And, you know, they were way down below on the undercard. I believe one of them was hurt. I think, I think Savio was the only one left. And so, um, it was uh, it, it was interesting that um, you know they, they they still used him on television and they used him in that manner and I was just really impressed with his showing against Draws they they really like took it to each other and I just thought like this could be something um, you know for him in a singles role like a, a an amped up street fighter type character you know what I mean like still adding that latin element to it of course um but just on his own you know uh i, I really felt that there that there was an opportunity there um and for whatever reason i think you know, a lot of it had to do with injuries timing um the creative process it just didn't really work out for him um another match that was interesting for me that um i, I was impressed with savio um which most fans look at as a fart in church and it's going to kind of predate the the brawl for all match was when savio replaced Shawn michaels at the no way out 1998 pay-per-view in that no disqualification non-sanctioned eight-man tag it was originally scheduled to be degeneration x triple h and Shawn michaels along with the new age outlaws taking on stone cold steve austin owen hart cactus jack and chainsaw charlie and savio vega ended up becoming Shawn michaels replacement because Shawn michaels was injured and when Savio came out, that Houston crowd just took it as like a, like I said, a big giant fart in church. But um, Savio had an established history on television with Steve Austin, and I felt it was a solid fit for the for what they had at the time. It was last minute; they couldn't really um, do anything about it. I mean, they could have scaled back and gone three on three instead, uh, maybe taking out you know Funk or Owen Hart or even Foley out of the match on the babyface side. But they wanted to keep it four on four, and you know Savio, I think was 
was a, a solid replacement. Um, you know, working hard in the match, and Savio brought his, you know, his uh, Puerto Rican roots to the match with that hardcore style from the the, the Puerto Rican wrestling territory, the World Wrestling Council. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed his presence in that match more than most wrestling fans did. Um, so that's where, like, my appreciation grew for him. And then he just kind of disappeared, and he was off the map. Um after that brawl for all later that summer in 1998 and as now you know i'm older more mature um you know we're 21 years removed and i've, I've been able to to watch some older um some of the more classic stuff i do a lot of research you know obviously for this show because it's a retro podcast and so i felt um as I've watched a lot of the older stuff, um, there's been a lot of hidden gems with Savio Vega in them and a lot of missed opportunities, in my opinion, where I felt like Savio Vega could have been a damn good intercontinental champion. He could have really, at that time in the 90s, represented that Latin American culture, uh, the likes of which like a Pedro Morales or a Tito Santana did at one point um, in the WWF during the, the the early territory days as they expanded into the, the, uh, the, the, the national level when Vince McMahon expanded the, the World Wrestling Federation um, in the, uh, the the mid to late 80s. So, um, yeah, I mean, just going back and watching some of that stuff, I mean, um, you know, a, a heel, you know, a, 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 sorry, I should say a baby face Savio Vega as the Intercontinental Champion against the likes of like a Jeff Jarrett um, or even, you know, um, Savio Vega, you know, heel turn on a Razor Ramon, um, I thought could have been something very interesting. Savio Vega had a little bit more of an edge to him than, than one, two, three kid. And even though one, two, three kid was a very sympathetic baby face and his turn was, um, was, a, was, a, was a pretty damn good heel turn joining the million dollar corporation, uh, in, uh, the fall of 1995. Um, I think Savio Vega could have amped up the, the edge a little bit and, uh, it could have been a little bit more believable for him to turn on Razor Ramon because he was just kind of like the replacement sidekick friend, um, you know, that, that, that came in. You could have kind of seen maybe a beef between him and one, two, three kid. Maybe it would have been Savio that would have joined the Million Dollar Corporation um, taking the money and one, two, three kid trying to expose Savio Vega for the fraud that he thought he was um, as one of Razor Ramon's friends. Um you know, hell, even, uh, you know, in 1998, when Steve Austin was WWF champion early on, um, they threw him to the wolves with Dude Love, and then eventually it would be Kane. Um, but maybe like a little brief television storyline with Savio Vega, maybe Savio Vega trying to uh, do the bidding for Mr. McMahon a little bit, um, and maybe get a brief um, title match with Savio and Austin um, on a pay-per-view. I mean, it, w it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary at that time, the way that they booked things, where there was all kinds of outlandish pay-per-view matches. You know, Vince, the Vince McMahon character always liked to stack the deck against Steve Austin. So, I mean, it, maybe, maybe we could have seen Steve Austin wrestle in a gauntlet match and Savio Vega but would have been one of the competitors and you know maybe Savio came close to becoming the WWF champion I know it may sound crazy to a lot of you out there when you think about the Savio Vega name but to me going back and watching a lot of this stuff I really felt like there was just some missed opportunities in elevating him to the next level um even so much so that um I'm kind of surprised that he wasn't involved a lot in the um the that little ECW uh, run-in in, in uh, the the spring of 97 when, you know, Paul Heyman brought the ECW guys to Monday Night Raw and they were there to really just kind of like 
sell their pay-per-view, which, you know, the, the barely, barely legal pay-per-view, excuse me. Um, I, looking back on it, I'm kind of surprised because of Savio's hardcore roots and Savio's, um, you know, days in the World Wrestling Council territory for Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico, that Savio Vega wasn't going to be a part of that. And maybe he would have been, you know, featured in a match against like an, an RVD or a Sabu, you know, um, on a Monday Night Raw, or maybe even like one of those in-your-house pay-per-views. Um, I know that there was um, a lot of stories about how um, the WWF talent felt about the ECW talent coming in and kind of taking their spotlight um, to promote their pay-per-view. And this was in the midst of the Monday Night Wars when WCW um, was really putting the full court press on the WWF and Vince McMahon, you know, had to pull the, 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 the rabbit out of the hat and involve another wrestling organization, an upstart group like ECW, onto their programming uh, to get people to watch. So... Um, I know that that was a, a, a point of contention in a number of stories I've heard over the years that the WWF guys had some issues with those ECW guys coming in. So maybe that's a, another reason why we didn't get to see a matchup like a Savio Vega. Maybe Savio was one of those guys. But I, looking back on it, I just feel like a lot of missed opportunities. Um, I know right now, currently, he's involved with Major League Wrestling, MLW, the, the, the organization owned by Court Bauer. And um, he's, uh, he's, he's involved in a top storyline there. I don't watch a whole lot of MLW, but um, I hear he's been doing some pretty good things. I know for a while he was a part of um, TNA Wrestling, helping the women uh, when they were developing that knockouts division. He was like their Fit Finley, so to speak. Finley, who you know played a pivotal role in the women and their development in WWE. Um, Savio Vega was, was in a similar role in TNA. Um, so, I mean, he, he's still contributing to the business. Um, would I like to see him maybe on a, on a larger platform or being involved somehow like in WWE? Maybe, yeah, maybe seeing him in NXT. Um, who knows? Maybe someday, you know, NXT is going to branch out to the islands of Puerto Rico and maybe maybe Savio's going to have some involvement there too as well. Maybe the Cologne family will still have some involvement. I don't know, but um, Savio Vega, I've learned to appreciate more in these later years as I've watched the WWE Network. Some really fun stuff from him. Um, a character who was really popular with the audience and he really grabbed at the Latin American culture because they resonated with him because he was a blue-collar Latin American person um, that you know fought real hard and did his best and you know just would come up short but everyone can relate to that sort of thing everyone can relate to you know working hard and busting your ass and not reaching the the levels of success that you would like to reach at Savio Vegas character was a lot like that the very blue collar so um you know if I give you guys a suggestion this week go go find your way to watching you know some Savio Vegas stuff on the WWE network from his run in the the WWF in the the mid 90s um I think there was a lot of fun stuff from him and uh, a lot of missed opportunities as to where um, you could have seen him gone. Hell, I mean, tag team titles, too. You know, at one point, you know, he was a member of the Nation of Domination with Crush and Farouk. Maybe we could have seen a Crush Savio Vega tag team run with the titles. I mean, at that time, the WWF's tag team division was pretty weak. I mean, you had Owen Hart and Davey Boy Smith, Doug Furness and Philip LaFon, Vader and Mankind were a brief team at one point. Um, 
Then you had the Road Warriors, Legion of Doom, and then you, you know you had the Nation, uh, Savio and Crush. And eventually they would break up the Nation, and um, that would splinter off into Savio forming the Bariquas and Crush forming the DOA. But um, maybe a brief tag team title run with uh, with. Um, with, with Crush Hell, even in the in the mid '90s, maybe a brief tag team title run with him and Razor Ramon. I mean, their friendship on television was pretty strong. Um, and back, you know, a couple of years prior, th- that tag team division wasn't anything to write home about. I mean, you really just had like Owen and Yoko smoking guns. Like that was really it. Like if you had put Razor and Savio as a team, um, maybe it would have, you know, breathed some life into that tag team division. Maybe even a, a, a quick tag team title run between the two. Um, who knows? But I always like to do these what if scenarios and just kind of reminisce and look back and see what could have been and why and just my appreciation for Savio Vega as a whole um, as a competitor and you know someone who at a very young age I didn't really care for didn't really have any you know any any stake in 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 his character but over time I learned to appreciate him a little bit more now as I'm older I'm like I'm really enjoying watching some of his stuff Um, I plan to try and get to watch uh, his stuff from Puerto Rico I heard that like that's like where like he really cut his teeth um, with that hardcore style so um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to watch some of that on YouTube I know that WWE really doesn't have a whole lot of the uh, the, the 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 video library from uh, World Wrestling Council and Carlos Cologne, but um, you know I'm sure that there's stuff out there on YouTube and Google. I'll just have to find it and see if there's anything that that really catches my attention when it comes to uh, Savio Vega. Um, all right, so um, that's 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 our first subject here. Um, moving on, uh, we're going to talk about concept in wrestling that um i felt um had some steam to it had had some legs that i really felt could have been um if executed properly i think could have been a staple in wrestling to this day um and I'm talking about the Battle Bowl concept. Uh, recently, Cody Rhodes had applied for the trademarks to the Battle Bowl name. Um, he's taking a uh, he's taking a move out of his old man's playbook and going for uh, some of the ideas that Dusty had created. Um, he recently, you know, bought the acquired the rights to Bash at the Beach. AEW used that name for a, uh, a you know a themed episode of Dynamite recently. Um, Super Brawl is another name that I believe he had trademarked, as well as um, Battle Bowl. So. Uh, um, you know, for those of you out there that are unfamiliar with Battle Bowl, Battle Bowl was a concept that was created in WCW by the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, and it made its debut at the Starcade pay-per-view in 1991. Um, it was a it was a concept where it was a it was a random lottery where. Um, Teams of two would be formed of random guys. It could be a mixture of heels and baby faces, two heels, two baby faces, whatever. Um, it could be guys that are feuding with each other on TV. It could be two guys who have never teamed before ever. Um, and they would face another random team. And it would be a tag team match. And the winning team would then move on to the Battle Bowl main event. Uh, at the uh, Starcade 1991 event, um, there were 10 tag team matches, and the finals would be a two-ring, 20-man, over-the-top rope battle royal, um, where the 20 men would start out in the first ring, and they would have to get thrown into the second ring. And then once they are in the second ring, if they get thrown out of that ring, then they were officially eliminated. Uh, came down to Sting and WCW World Heavyweight Champion Lex Luger, who won the 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 
the ring one portion of that battle royal and sting would end up eliminating luger becoming the very first battle bowl winner now initially um Sting didn't win anything. Uh, he was just known as a Battle Bowl winner, and that was the end of it. Um, he would eventually get a title shot against Lex Luger at the Super Brawl pay-per-view um, in February of 1992, just a few months later, and would end up winning the championship. But that wasn't as the that wasn't the result of his Battle Bowl victory. He just happened to have been named the number one contender. Um, the following year, the Battle Bowl concept would return to Starcade. At the 1992 edition, which, by the way, you can check out a special watch along of that on the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network for the Marking Out the Day's one year anniversary show. Kobe and I watched that Starcade from start to finish with the Battle Bowl concept. It was a lot of fun, so you could check that out in the archives at the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. And, um,. Yeah, that match was a little different because that concept was, you know, tweaked just a little bit. They didn't have as many competitors and uh, there was only one ring and it came down to the great Muda eventually winning the Battle Bowl tournament and becoming the Battle Bowl champion. Now, ironically enough, that year... Um, Sting had an automatic entry into the Battle Bowl tournament as he teamed with, I believe, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Um, and uh, because of his victory in the previous Battle Bowl, and he received his ring at the beginning of that pay-per-view from uh, Hank Aaron and WCW Vice President of, Op of Wrestling Operations, Bill Watts, to defend that ring in the Battle Bowl. He was unsuccessful, and Great Muda would end up winning it. Um, and then the following year, in 1993, they took the Battle Bowl concept and they turned it into its very own standalone pay-per-view in 1993, um, where Vader would end up becoming the battle bowl winner vader at the time was the world heavyweight champion and i it really wasn't designed to um to enhance the battle bowl concept it was more or less a tool to kind of um advance the storyline between vader and flair who were scheduled for a title match at the clash of champ or i'm sorry at the starcade pay-per-view the month following in december of 93 so um the battle bowl would take a a break for a few years and would return at the 1996 slamboree pay-per-view event where diamond dallas page would end up winning that battle bowl um uh, tournament um, I forget who he had teamed with I believe it was Bunkhouse Buck and event and then he would get into the Battle Royal and he would end up winning it and that was really the resurgence of Diamond Dallas Page you were seeing a a, a revigorated Diamond Dallas Page on WCW programming at that time and before that he was you know the, the wrestler who won the lottery then he went broke then he got fired then he became homeless but then winning the Battle Bowl he got all his money back and you know it just kind of revived his career he went from the outhouse to the penthouse, back to the outhouse, and back to the penthouse again, um, so to speak. Uh, so, um, yeah, that was the last time we would see the Battle Bowl concept. And, and that, to me, I felt probably that particular Battle Bowl victory for DDP probably benefited him the most um, out of all the Battle Bowl victories. You had, you know, Sting, Muda, Vader, and then Diamond Dallas Page. And um, that, to me, kind of elevated DDP at the level um, where you saw guys, you know, get their big breakthrough. So, like, for instance, um, 
the King of the Ring tournament was always seen as something where it like elevates a guy to the next level. Today, in the modern day WWE, Money in the Bank is one of those situations where like it's been used to elevate a guy, somebody who you know could use the the rub and uh, eventually move up the ladder in the ranks of the, uh, the 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 title picture in WWE. So, um, you know, the the Battle Bowl in 1996 for DDP, I think, did that for him, and eventually over time it would just build and build until like the end of that year diamond dallas page he almost forgot he was the battle bull winner because you know he was embroiled in a bidding war with the nwo and that would eventually culminate with ddp you know uh turning down the services of the nwo and um that just really took him off from there so you could argue that battle bull in in may of 1996 was really what set up diamond dallas page for a big year you know to come uh in 1997 uh so um i feel like here's 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 where i'm at when it comes to battle bull i felt like if there was higher stakes in battle bowl and then the concept in wcw like if it if if the winner received a title shot at a pay-per-view similar to what the royal rumble does for a guy now in wwe that has it's been a tradition since 1993 with that the winner would face the champion at wrestlemania um if the Battle Bowl was treated like that, I think people would have taken it more seriously. Um, I think there was a lot of intrigue with the Battle Bowl concept. If you had two guys that were currently, you know, in a, in a, a rivalry, um, a, a very heated one on television, and you forced them to team up, it created a very interesting um, element to the storyline, not only for them, but also for the Battle Bowl match itself and who they would be facing. Um I remember at one point, I think it was the 91 Battle Bowl, um, Sting was forced to team with Abdullah the Butcher, but Sting um, was attacked by his own partner, Abdullah the Butcher, um, before the match, and then Sting would have to go on to face um, beautiful Bobby Eaton and Brian Pillman, flying Brian Pillman. And so there was that element of... You know, the, the partners not being able to get along, heading into the match, and then that kind of created this underdog story for Sting where, you know, he didn't really have a partner going into the Battle Bowl. And he had to, you know, fight against the odds of, of, of Bobby Eaton and Brian Pillman. But Brian Pillman at the time was a babyface, so he really wasn't, um, you know, against Sting necessarily, but he was just put into the situation because that was the luck of the draw. That's what he drew. He drew that that number, and he was tagged up with beautiful Bobby. So um, I, I've always liked that element of, like, two guys being forced to team with each other in the Battle Bowl concept. It's been done to death now um, in, in more modern times in recent years where they get two guys that are forced to team with each other they end up becoming the champs and then they're the tag team champions when they face off in their rivalry you know two champions two tag champs facing each other that's been done to death but in the in the early days um i felt like that was a very interesting um scenario um and i think that's something that wcw i think should have really in my opinion, I think they should have stuck with it and maybe just kind of fine-tuned it a little bit. Maybe a title shot would be on the line. Give it some stakes, you know what I mean? Because if, if, if you don't give it some stakes, then there's no real... Um, there, there, there's no real importance to it and and fans probably look at it like it just doesn't mean anything. Like, for instance, the King of the Ring tournament. Um, you know, the King of the Ring tournament, they've always promoted it on television as like you, you move to the next level. It's the it's the launching pad for, you know, a superstar to to, to to break the glass ceiling, so to speak. And 
you know, that's all well and good, but like, give me some real stakes behind like the King of the Ring tournament. You know, I think there is probably in all of its incarnation, the only time that the King of the Ring tournament meant something was in 2002 when Brock Lesnar won it. And the winner of that tournament would face the champion at SummerSlam that year. So nowadays they've kind of brought back the King of the Ring tournament more recently. Um, Baron Corbin won it. I think he's really adapted well to that King Corbin persona. People don't like him. He's kind of got that like old school um, heel heat going for him. Um, And so, uh, you know, there's still no stakes to it. There's still nothing to to compete for. Okay, you're the king. You walk around with a fucking crown and a scepter, but it doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. You know what I mean? You know, you won that tournament. Congratulations. Like, you know, you'll be the king until the next person gets crowned the king, you know? So that's what I mean, like, in a sense where there needs to be something on the line, something to, to a goal to reach for. Um, and I think they missed the boat on that with Battle Bowl. I think they really did. Um, because, like I said, the only time it really meant something was when Diamond Dallas Page um, ended up, uh, you know, um, winning it. And it really just kind of, like, began his path to the top um, in WCW during a time period where, you know, the the NWO was, you know, just getting their feet wet and really disrupting things on television. Um, you know, it was always a concept that I felt WWE could have capitalized on. Um, but as we all know, WWE doesn't like to um, take an idea that was created buy another organization and use it although they've used the 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 war games concept um the last few years at the nxt takeovers and they adopted you know uh um the uh a, a little bit of their own um their their own panache their own flair to the to the concept you know removing the top of the cage giving guys more of an opportunity to do things on top of the cage in the two ring cage for war games um i think it you know modernizes the 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 concept while still paying homage and respect to the history of the concept that was created by the late great american dream dusty Rhodes. um so I, i feel like they could still use that battle bowl concept um maybe add it to a um you know, to uh, like one of the, the, I wouldn't call them B pay-per-views, but one of the non-big four pay-per-view events, like, fuck, I don't know, like a, a night of champions or something, or, um, you know, a, a backlash or whatever those stupid, you know, middle of the road pay-per-views are kind of add some intrigue to those. Um, because you have the Royal Rumble, um, which is, you know, 30 guys and, you know, coming in in intervals. But if you dedicated an entire pay-per-view to the Battle Bowl concept and, and delivered some stakes, um, I think it could, you know, add uh, some intrigue to some of their uh, their B-level pay-per-views. Um, and, and, you know, AEW bringing it back, I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, is Cody going to stick to the original format that his father had created and, you know, go with, you know, the 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 two random guys thrown together to face off against two other random guys. And then the winners go on to a battle Royal. Is he going to modernize it? Is he going to add something new to it? Um, the only thing I can tell you is I'm, I, I would hope that he, when AEW takes that concept, they add some stakes to it. Like I said, from the get go, make make it important. Make us feel like that, um, you know, that, 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 
there's an importance to the match that everyone's fighting for something. They're not just fighting for the pride of being the winner of the battle bowl, that there's more to it, a title shot or, you know, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, just, you know, something that, that makes you want to compete in the match, you know? So, um, that's where I stand when it comes to the battle bowl concept, something I've always enjoyed, maybe a guilty pleasure of mine, but, um, something that hopefully, uh, you know, Cody Rhodes and, uh, the, the, the crew over at AEW does right by it. Um, whenever they do decide to create it, who knows, maybe he just bought the trademark so that, uh, you know, he could just have it so that WWE couldn't have it. I don't know, but I have a feeling he's going to do something with it. And hopefully he does something meaningful. Um, so yeah, that's my take on that. Um, topic number three is an interesting topic that I thought would that we could discuss here, and that is the role of intergender wrestling, both past and present. As a wrestling fan growing up, I was you know naturally conditioned to witness the males taking on the males and the females taking on the females. And as time went on, from time to time, the women would get involved with the men, whether they were valets, whether they would. Uh, interfere in the match maybe get physical with some of the guys um very rarely did you see a guy get physical with a woman uh, i would say probably sensational sherry to the best of my knowledge was probably one of the very few that uh, mixed it up with the guys and the guys gave it back to her hulk hogan in particular atomic drops and clothes lines and punches to the face um you know back in 1988 1989 that might have been a little bit more accepted but uh in 2020 um you know 30 plus years ago that that, that would be a big no-no um in our very sensitive culture that we live in um but as time went on as wrestling has evolved as life evolves as society evolves um you know women's involvement in wrestling um is more prevalent um and probably one of the very first to uh, really introduce and to be highlighted um you know on a major platform when it comes to intergender wrestling would be china uh wwe hall of famer um you know, being a female bodyguard to Triple H, um, which at the time in 1997 was a head scratcher for me. I was like, who the hell's going to believe that she is a female body, you know, a female bodyguard? Like, what are you kidding me? And then, of course, you know, naturally, when you looked at her at first, you, ever, you know, a lot of people thought, well, that's a man. That's not a woman. And, you know, then at one point I thought, you know, well, when's the storyline going to be revealed that she's really a man? And Hunter was just trying to get one over on us, you know, Um but over time, um, you know, I, it, the, the idea of her mixing it up with the guys just naturally grew on me because they didn't give you a whole lot of China um, facing off against the guys. Little, little subtle shots here and there, you know, a, a low blow of, you know, to one of Triple H's opponents while the ref is distracted, a forearm, a body slam, a clothesline. And she, you know, performed some of the moves a lot better than the guys who had been doing it longer than her. Um, and so it became a thing where it was a little bit more accepted. Um, and as our society became very, um, very like, can you top this in the nineties, especially like the late nineties that like Howard Stern, Jerry Springer kind of demographic that the WWF was, was positioning themselves towards, um, China beating up the guys, you know, was a very regular thing and people didn't bat an eye to it. Um, wrestling the guys too, they didn't really bat an eye to it. And, uh, it, it, it would become, um, a more regular thing as time went on with her competing for a men's title, the intercontinental championship, and eventually winning it from Jeff Jarrett in that like good housekeeping, 
you know, clean up your house match or whatever the fuck it was, where it was pretty much a hard, hardcore match with household items, um, which was a, a fun match to watch. It wasn't, you know, anything special, but it was still pretty fun. Um, and her story to get the men's championship and compete with the men, I thought was a pretty solid progression considering where she'd come from. She had done just about everything she could do with Triple H and with DX and all of this stuff, but to really branch out on her own, I thought it was a bold move on Vince Russo's part to um, to to have her compete with the men more and be a regular competitor against the men, and it, it wasn't seen as an attraction anymore. It was just kind of a regular thing. Um, and she just became more popular and people really gravitated to her character and some people identified with her. And, you know, like I said, as time goes on, it becomes more accepted. And now it's become more of a regular thing in wrestling these days. Um, one of the one of the individuals that really has made it a thing um, within the last few years is Joey Ryan. Um, Joey Ryan has marketed himself in a way that makes him not only stand out but he's profitable from it and you know it's something that gets people's attention um the whole you know uh you know using his penis as a part of his act you know not showing his penis of sort uh, uh, you know of course but the the illusion of his penis being a part of his wrestling repertoire and part of his finishing maneuver um is very fascinating and the early stages of that came from when he used to do a lot of mixed tag team wrestling with Candice LeRae who is currently on NXT the wife of Johnny Gargano um, on the California independent scene uh, for a very long time um, the two of them you know would have these mixed tag matches with the girls would wrestle the guys and the guys would get physical with the girls and it would become um, a, a, a real happening you would see all kinds of clips on YouTube and and all over the dirt sheets you know how they were just making this big splash as this like mixed they, they booked themselves like this mixed tag team um all over the country and really marketed themselves and done a great job of that and uh as time went on i think that eventually evolved to what we're kind of seeing today with tessa blanchard as the impact wrestling world heavyweight champion i mean she came into impact wrestling now before i get into her let me just say I don't condone the alleged racist comments that she had made towards another female worker, the spitting, the bullying, anything like that. I don't condone any of that stuff. So before anyone wants to get on their soapbox and say I'm praising Tessa Blanchard, when it, I'm talking about what she does in the ring and her character and what she has contributed to the profession. I'm not talking about her as a human being. Now, like I said, these are all alleged comments okay um she is denying these comments and um there are others that are that are opposing her statements and you know i don't get into the he said she said and who what where when and why when it comes to shit like that i think regardless of whether she said it or not it's wrong uh it's totally out of line and i don't agree with it racism and bullying has no place not only in wrestling but in this world um and so, you know, hopefully, you know, we can all grow as individuals, move on, become better people and learn from this situation. 
regardless of whether she said it or not, because it's all alleged, okay? We can't, I'm not going to sit here and try and lose sleep over the fact whether she said this shit or not, okay? I really am not. Even though many have said her father had a history of, 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 of using language like that and acting that way towards others, I'm not going to sit here and say that she said it, okay? But I'm not going to sit here and say that she didn't say it. And you can call me a fence rider. I really don't give a fuck, but I'm talking about the her role in intergender wrestling um you know she burst onto the scene with the blanchard name using her father's pedigree to really help her get ahead um you know um moving her her way up the ranks on the indie scene now she's at a national level with impact wrestling the world heavyweight champion um wrestling with the guys she had kind of dominated that women's division and then they moved her over to the guys and there's been a lot of mixed reviews regarding her um, her role um, as the Impact Wrestling World Heavyweight Champion, the first female to ever do that um, in wrestling history, I should say, um, becoming the the male heavyweight champion. She's been the female champion. Now she's the, the champion for the males, even though she is a female. Um, we live in a society where gender identity is a hot topic, whether you are for it or you are against it. It is a very hot topic. And so I understand why Impact Wrestling kind of went that route and put her in a role where she is able to compete with the males and be on the same level with the males but i could also make the argument that i understand why people would be against it um i look at it like this and i've had i had this conversation with a with a few friends um when, when intergender wrestling was discussed um when it comes to the portrayal of a male versus a female if you were to present us with an athletic presentation hold for hold move for move um you know a, a traditional wrestling match i could get into a male wrestling a female but once you start punching and kicking and using weapons and things like that that's where i have a hard time buying it because and this may, and I don't want to offend any of our female listeners here. I don't know how many we have, but I don't want to offend any females that listen to this show. Um, it's been proven that males are genetically stronger physically than females. When a guy hits a woman, they hit hard. Not to say a woman hit the guy doesn't hit hard because... You know, I, I used to work in the bar business, so I, I've been hit by a few girls. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of them almost damn near rang my bell. But guys hitting women, it just, it's proven that they hit harder. And they are physically stronger. Um, and some may look at that as a stereotype, but it's been proven over time. The evolution of life, okay? Um I think what Impact Wrestling has tried to do with her is to try and tell the story that a woman can do anything in this world. 
A woman can be the leader of a multi-million dollar corporation. A woman can be a star athlete. A woman can be anything they want to be. Um, because there, there, the last several years, there has been a women's movement in our society. Not just wrestling, not the women's evolution that WWE likes to claim it, but just in our society itself, whether it's professional sports, pop culture, entertainment, arts, you name it. There has been a movement for gender equality with women. And so the the idea and the theory behind them telling the story that Tessa Blanchard can do anything a male can do, I understand why they went that route. They're trying to reach a broader audience by getting a female audience and maybe even mainstream media and mainstream and a mainstream audience to gravitate to this storyline. Oh, that wrestling show? They have the girl that's the heavyweight champion? Oh, okay, let's go check that out. And then once you get invested in the story, you know, they, their, their hope, I think, is for, for people to, you know, gravitate to it and be like, oh, damn, this is good. Oh, wow, they're giving a girl the chance to do this? Oh, this is pretty cool. Now, downfall of that is is that it's wrestling wrestling is always going to have that that negative stigma to a mainstream culture and and in society today that is just like it's that carnival fake phony ballet bullshit you know it's it's always going to have that no matter no matter how hard wrestling tries to be as mainstream as anything, and that's, that includes WWE, there's always going to be that negative stigma from arts and entertainment and sports. People are going to look at it um, like it's just that fake shit, you know what I mean? And I don't really like that, but I've I've grown accustomed to accepting that. Um, do I think wrestling's a little more accepted in our society today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I still think it, ha it still has that negative stigma, you know? I mean, I still get people today when, you know, people I work with... Um, some know I'm a big wrestling fan. There are others that are like, you watch that fake shit? Oh, you do a podcast on it? What, what are you going to talk about on there? What do you talk about on a podcast that's involved in wrestling? You know? And I, I try to explain it to them. And they're like, it's no different than, you know, people who have fandom for professional sports or comic books or Star Wars. I mean, you know, it, it's no different than that. You know, it's, it's a lot. It's live theater right in front of your face, you know? Um, and so, you know, I try to rationalize, you know, th that with them and, you know, there's still that negative stigma. So I think the, the, the theory behind the story of her working with the males is, is something that is honorable on their part to, to, to implement into, into their programming. But I think it also has some negative drawbacks, not because it's a woman in a, in a centerpiece role on their programming. That's not the reason why. I just think that because it's wrestling and, you know, because naturally when you look at like a male fighting a female, more often than not, most people would think that the male would have the upper hand because genetically they've been proven to be physically stronger than females. And like I said, it's not a knock on the female gender. It's not a knock on, on females in wrestling. I'm just trying to navigate my way through this slippery slope here and explain to you why people may think that there's a negative drawback to it. Now, does intergender wrestling have a longevity in our business, in the business of wrestling, I should say our business. I'm not even in the wrestling business. Um, 
I don't know. Time will tell. Um, I think right now it's, I wouldn't say it's hot, but it's popular. It's something that has, um, that has caught on to a niche audience, I should say. Um, I feel like if, and I hate to use this, I, I, I hate to use this, uh, you know, the, the, this, this idea here, but um, if, if it were, if, if intergender wrestling was presented to us on a larger stage like a WWE or even an AEW, I think people might accept it a little bit more. Um, and WWE almost went that route last year in the Royal Rumble when they when they did the spot with Nia Jax where Nia Jax took our truth spot at number 30 and got involved in the match now a little inside story here uh, my brother Justin who is co-hosted from time to time with me on this show him and I had both kind of collectively come up with the idea um, that that spot would have gone to Becky Lynch before the Royal Rumble had taken place in weeks prior you know when we kind of like brainstorm and talk wrestling and come up with different ideas and do the whole fantasy booking thing like every other wrestling fan does um, the idea that Becky Lynch who had claimed to be the man at that time would you know, eliminate someone like an R-Truth or take his spot and be the last one standing um, to then find her way to get into the main event at WrestleMania. I thought that that would have been a fantastic idea. But WWE, in my opinion, I felt were afraid to kind of run with that idea because I felt like they probably would have tried. I think they felt like it would have taken the credibility away from the men's Royal Rumble match. Um, but I hearken that back to, I, I hearken back to the idea that it's live theater. It's like a, it's like a comic book come to life. You know, how many comic book movies do you watch where there's a female superhero gaining the upper hand over the male? You know what I mean? How many, how many times have you seen um, some of these action thrillers where there's, you know, a female fighting a male and, and kind of like winning the fight? You know what I mean? Um, that seems to be accepted because it's a movie because at the end of the day, when the movie's over, you could be like, Oh, okay. That was, you know, know that you know, that was that, that was fun that was kind of cool whatever but you couldn't buy that same theory in wrestling uh, to me i just don't understand the logic behind that um and i also think to them kind of adding nia Jax into that spot was their way of kind of placating to the audience because even after my brother and i had discussed this idea surrounding um you know the uh the, 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 the role of Becky Lynch in the men's rumble match. Then all of a sudden, for some reason, it just started snowballing online. Um, people have been talking about it. At one point, it even became a rumor um, in the dirt sheets that there was an idea to really shake up the men's match, uh, maybe involving Becky Lynch. And so I think that that was WWE's way of kind of like compromising with wrestling fans like well we put a woman in the men's match but it wasn't the woman that you like so fuck you <laughs> i think that was like a fuck you but a compromise all at the same time so um wrestling intergender does it have longevity i don't know yet i think time will tell but i think it's an interesting subject that um hopefully i navigated it 
appropriately for our female audience and like i said i hope that i didn't offend anybody um and if i did by all means i can take the heat you can find me on facebook uh you can slide in the dms at kicking out of two facebook.com forward slash kicking out of two as well as our twitter at kicking out two um if you, <laughs> yeah you know if, if there's any kind of issue please by all means i would love to hear what you have to say debate whatever it is um but you know i just that that's just how i feel um regarding the the place that intergender wrestling has in today's um landscape of professional wrestling and you know before i kind of put the bow on that subject um there's been a number of wrestlers male wrestlers who have I wouldn't say are against it, but they have expressed their concerns about it. Um, one being Booker T, where he had expressed his concerns about Tessa Blanchard's win of the Impact Championship, saying it was the dumbest idea they ever came up with, and it kind of um, devalues the males um, because at one point, who's going to who beats Tessa Blanchard um, for that title, and what does it do for that person? And if Tessa goes back to the women's division, well, if she could beat the guys, she's got to be able to beat all the girls. Um, so, I mean, there's there's that that you could think about as well and just kind of, like, let that sink in a little bit, and, and hopefully, you know, you kind of get a better idea of where your stance is on intergender wrestling. But I just wanted to kind of get that out there so, that, um, you know, just kind of get it all out in, in, in hopes that you guys all understand. So, um, yeah, to put a bow on it, We'll see what happens with intergender wrestling. It could be a thing that lasts a long time and it's just for a niche audience, or it could just be, you know, one of those flash in the pan things um, that, 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 that come and go in wrestling history. All right. Our next subject here is um, something that I really enjoyed watching as a kid when I was younger, a concept in wrestling that um, another concept that I really enjoyed in wrestling that I felt was uh, good for its time. And it was really revolutionary and groundbreaking um, to say the least for the wrestling business and really kind of opened the doors for that peek behind the curtain that eventually, you know, you get kind of, you, you kind of get now with wrestling when it comes to um, access to the, the, the talents via social media and, you know, the, the, the dirt sheets and, uh, you know, all these different platforms. And I'm talking about WWF Livewire. Um, WWF Livewire premiered on Saturday, September 21st, 1996. Uh, initially, it was a live show format, and it was broadcasted live, allowing viewers to phone in and participate in the show, asking questions to guests. Um, and it was the first WWF program to feature such an interactive element. Um, it was basically used to summarize weekly events and programming and featured interviews with WWF personalities and uh, allowed the fans to uh, phone in and ask questions to the in-studio guests. Um, I really liked this concept back in 1996. You saw some pretty interesting stuff. It was almost like WWE's way of tackling the elephant in the room known as the, the dirt sheets. Uh, because that was right around the time, I think, where I started reading a lot of the rumors online and, you know, different websites, whether it was Observer or 411 or PW Torch. Um, I think this was their way of kind of like giving the fans a little bit of that, but in their own way. Um, you know, Jim Ross, Todd Pettengill 
had a, a, a round or two hosting. Uh, you saw guys like Jim Cornette, Michael Hayes when he was Doc Hendricks. Vince Russo had a spot in the show. Um, you saw some really interesting, innov- innovative stuff at that time. It was, you know, like I said, live Saturday morning. Um, some of the phone calls were interesting, too, because you would get a lot of talk about WCW or ECW on some of those phone calls. And, you know, for instance, someone like a Jim Ross or even a Jim Cornette, they had no problem open, you know, opening up about those subjects and talking about them. Um, you know, I remember, um, one instance in particular where, um, the, it was the it was an episode of live wire following the Brian Pillman, um, you know, gun angle that they did on Monday Night Raw, where Steve Austin broke into Pillman's house and Pillman pulled the pulled a pistol out and was going to blow his head off on live TV. Um, USA Network had no idea all that stuff was going on. They were f- furious, and Vince McMahon had to come on television, present himself as the owner, not the announcer, and apologize for um, the, the the situation unfolding. And to the point where I remember. There was one woman, she was a mother, she had a couple of kids that watched, and she had expressed to Vince on the air that, like, you know, I don't think this is something that I can allow my children to watch. Wrestling used to be for kids, and now you're, you're, you're pulling out guns and doing all this crazy stuff, and I think she even referenced gold dust, and now you got homosexuals on there, and, you know, that was a different time period when homosexuality wasn't accepted as much in our community, in our society, so... Um, this woman just kind of like tore into Vince and he just sat there and he had to take it. And uh, I believe at one point, Jim Ross was kind of like supporting the woman's statements and, and her concerns, um, kind of giving it back to Vince. He's like, well, Vince, what the hell are you going to do now? You know, like, this is ridiculous. You got to get this thing in order. You got to, you know, you, you can't let this crap go on. And, um, he saw a lot of different things take place on that live wire show that, like I said, it was a precursor to what, kind of access fans would have with talents um, like what we see today with social media being able to tweet someone and being able to interact with them whether it's you know a, 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 a congratulatory tweet or a, a, a troll trying to you know put some of the wrestlers down like you see, you see a lot more trolling on, on Twitter than you do you know a congratulations or that was great um, and you know when I do you know, frequent Twitter with the kicking out of two account. I try to be as positive as possible um, and get some interaction amongst the followers. And even when I tweet other people, it's never to like give them a hard time except for Ryan Satin. I think I busted Ryan Satin's chops a few times from pro wrestling sheet uh, because I think he's a fucking hypocrite. And um, I really don't care for him personally and the way that he reports and how he just kind of like puts down people in the business, but then tries to pretend like he's in the fucking business um, when he's no different than him or, him or I. He's branded himself um, as, uh, you know, uh, this, you know, ace reporter. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're a fucking fan and you just got lucky, uh, you know, with your job with WWE. And that's not me hating you, okay? Because I would have done the same thing. But, you know, I, I just think the way that you kind of like, you, 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 you put down people and the way you put down other wrestlers, but then you fucking suck up to them on Twitter at the same time is pretty low, is, is pretty low class. So, yeah, that's my little rant for today when it comes to uh, Ryan Satin. But, um, 
One of the more famous incidences that took place on these live wire shows was on October the 5th, 1996. Paul Heyman called in using an alias Bruce from Connecticut. I'm assuming he's referring to Bruce Pritchard um, to express his discontent with boring WWF programming and the state of the organization. It was also on that same episode that Farouk had debuted as uh, the leader of the Nation of Domination. Farouk was already on television and he kind of did this like Roman gladiator gimmick, but then he came out with Clarence Mason. This was the beginning of the Farouk Nation of Domination character. Um, Eventually, over time, the concept would change. I think they realized that, you know, they had opened up Pandora's box by allowing fans to call in and things just getting out of hand. And, you know, there were a few episodes of Livewire I remember watching where, you know, a guy would call in and he was so nervous on the phone. JR would be like, we ain't got time all day. Let's go. Let's go. You got a question. We're going to answer it. But otherwise, I'm going to hang up on you next caller. And he hung up on the guy. <laughs> Poor guy couldn't even get his question out. And I think they realized that they were that, that was something that they didn't want to police or they didn't have time to police um i don't think they screened calls as well um so it was one of those things where eventually it became just a recap show where you know michael cole would be in studio and it was it wasn't live it was pre-taped um and it was something that um you know was used to you know recap weekly programming they may have had like an exclusive match here and there um to kind of you know give it give live wire its own identity but for the most part and it really strayed away from the uh, from the live format. And eventually, the show would be discontinued after August the 18th of 2001. Um, Todd Pettengill and Sonny had a had a run hosting it. Those are some pretty interesting times. Steve Austin was a part of a, some of those live wire shows. You really got to see Stone Cold amped up. When given a live microphone, those were some of the early incarnations of Austin's work on the mic in the WWF. And that live wire show was pretty, you know pretty you know uh, intense at times when it came to um guys being able to have a little bit of some rope to hang themselves with when it comes to the range and their characters uh, i don't think it was as micromanaged as obviously you see wwe programming today very sanitized uh when it you know when it comes to the content um but it i mean it's it's like i said it opened the door i think for um more interaction with the fan base and to the performers over time, like I said, you have, you know, social media where you can follow a wrestler. You can like them on Facebook and Instagram and follow them on Twitter. And then there's all these different other social media platforms like Snapchat and things like that where, you know, you have so much access to these individuals and, and in their real lives or what they make us believe is their real life that i think livewire was one of those first very um interactive precursors to get us to that point i mean now we have the 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 backstage show that's on fs1 um which is live in the evenings they don't take phone calls which i don't blame them but they do take some questions from social media and you get some tweets and things like that but it just isn't really the same um i don't think that it's something that they can get back to um i don't think that they want to open up that that pandora's box and have guys calling in and giving wrestlers a hard time and wrestlers firing back at them um they want something that they can control a little more and i think fox wants the same thing too so i don't think we're going to see anything like that but like i said it I, I i enjoyed it and i wouldn't mind seeing those episodes on the wwe network i'm sure that there's issues to that there's issues they have to sort through to get to that with licensing and you know permission um uh, uh you know for using certain people's 
voices and likeness and things like that and you had all kinds of crazy phone calls on there so maybe it won't be something that they put on the network but um yeah i i i enjoyed the live wire format and it brought some edge to wwf programming at that time when they were getting they were getting molly whopped by wcw with this nwo storyline and it, it like i said it brought an edge to it and um I wouldn't say it was destination TV, but um, Saturday mornings I definitely tuned in, and I, like I said, I enjoyed the live format with the phone calls and the guests, and you saw some you saw some pretty neat stuff on there that just kind of opened the door for more interaction between fans and talents in the years to come. All right, our last subject here, I brought it to all of you on social media, and you guys brought it right back to me, and I couldn't be more happier with the response that I had gotten, and that is in regards to um, the respective roles of Paul Roma and Steve McMichael in The Four Horsemen. Um, their, their runs, their individual runs in The Four Horsemen um, are regarded in wrestling history as probably two of the worst horsemen members in all of wrestling history and i asked all of you who would you have replaced both of those men with in 1993 with paul roma and 1996 with steve mongo mcmichael respectively and let me get to uh let me get to our facebook page here and go back uh i uh took this took this information this data from you guys about a month ago um and so let me get to it here with you guys um tony volpe good friend of mine um, from the uh, Save American Wrestling Group on Facebook. Um, he thinks Rick Rude and Bobby Eaton should have had those spots in 1993 with Ole Anderson only being there for a week, so it was just Flair and Arn. Um, and then in 96, he felt that Eddie Guerrero or Dean Malenko would have been a best fit at that time after Brian Pillman was fired. That's interesting. Um, Brandon Ward said, Beautiful Bobby Eaton and Scott Steiner. Very interesting. Um, Kobe Nida, my good buddy over at the Retro Mania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network, says in 93, he would have Pillman as the new addition. Replacing Ole would be Bobby Eaton along with Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. And then in 1996, he would go with Dean Malenko um, as the newest addition to team with Chris Benoit. Um, Larry Neese from the Legends of Wrestling Toys Facebook page. Big supporter of this show. Shout out to Larry. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for your support and your continued support. Go find Legends of Wrestling Toys on Facebook. Larry's got all kinds of cool pictures and videos and stuff like that when it comes to the history of pro wrestling. He's a retro wrestling buff like myself. Um... And he also has, uh, you know, pictures depicted of different action figures illustrating moments in wrestling history. So you can go check that out. That's a pretty fun little page. Um, go check that out over on Facebook. Legends of Wrestling Toys. T-O-Y-Z, by the way, uh, just in case you were wondering. He thinks Rude, Rick Rude, Steve Austin, or Bobby Eaton would have been a good fit in 93. He did like Steve McMichael as the enforcer type, but if he had to have replaced him, he would have added Diamond Dallas Page to the mix as he was still cocky and coming into his own. That's interesting. And I say that because we, we, we talked about DDP earlier in his ascent to the top with the Battle Bowl in 1996. Maybe that would have been an interesting fourth member of the Horsemen following his victory. Maybe the Horsemen could have recruited a Diamond Dallas Page to kind of be like their, their, their new single stud in the mid card. You know, Flair at the top. 
Anderson and Benoit as a tag team. DDP is like that fourth guy, you know, kind of like the Barry Windham role, United States champion, TV champion kind of role, maybe eventually branching him off into the heavyweight division. Maybe DDP would have had a short-term run as a horseman eventually feuding with Ric Flair for the heavyweight title. But at the same time, this was also before the NWO had come into the mix. So maybe that wouldn't have been something that they would have, that they would have done. Um, and then I, uh, I, I took this post to the Save American Wrestling Group, and there were a lot of different responses. Um, Tony had elaborated that he thought that it would have been a more fitting option for Rude and Eaton in the three and four spot. Um, he also mentioned that the Hollywood Blondes would have been a great fit. Now, if you remember in 1993, um, Ric Flair had returned to WCW. He had kind of turned babyface. Arn Anderson had come back after an extended absence following the issue with Sid Vicious and the whole stabbing. Um, or no, wait a minute. That was, oh, I'm sorry, that was before. That was before that. So Arn Anderson did have an absence on TV, off of TV for a little while. I think he was taken off TV um, to sell the whole Eric Watts angle he was doing, which was an abomination to begin with. Um, but um, they kind of paired them up again as a tag team, and they, they paired them up against the Hollywood Blondes, Steve Austin and Brian Pillman. And each week on TV, Austin and Pillman were just owning those two. And so putting them in the three and four spot in the four horsemen would be interesting because it would almost feel like – I feel like it could have worked um, – and, and allow me to elaborate here. Um, I feel like Austin and Pillman as the Hollywood Blondes, you know, maybe starting out a rivalry with Flair and Anderson, kind of taking them to the limit, so to speak, um, in some of these tag matches that they had. And then eventually at one point, um, Flair and Anderson kind of endorsing the two of them and then rechristening themselves as the Four Horsemen with Ole Anderson in the manager spot. Even though he had left um, not long after that, putting him in that manager spot um, – you know, kind of is the J.J. Dillon, I think, still would have worked with Flair, Anderson, um, Pillman, and Austin. Um, to me, Rick Rude, I don't feel like Rick Rude would have fit in the Four Horsemen. Rick Rude, I felt like, stood out on his own very well or leading his own group. But having Rick Rude play second fiddle to Rick Flair, to me, just doesn't make sense to me at all. Um Rick Rude did a great job as like the figurehead leader of the Dangerous Alliance in the night, you know, just a year prior. He was paired with Eaton, Anderson, Austin, and Larry Zabisco, Paul Heyman, Paulie Dangerously, and Medusa, um, kind of in the, the managerial type roles. Um, but Rude was like their centerpiece. Rude playing second fiddle to Flair, it just wouldn't work. It really wouldn't. Um, in fact, it would just it wouldn't make any sense. You know, Rick Root is just just as cocky and just as arrogant as Ric Flair. I don't think it would have lasted very long if they even tried it. Um, Bobby Eaton, on the other hand, that's an interesting name because at that time, Bobby Eaton was kind of in limbo. Um, late 92, he had been taken off TV as well. Um, you know, him and Anderson, Arn Anderson were a great tag team in 1992. Uh, was a part of the Dangerous Alliance. Had a, had a run, a couple of runs as world tag team champions, I believe. And Eaton just kind of disappeared for a little bit. And I feel like Bobby Eaton's wrestling pedigree, being a, a member of the Midnight Express and um, the, the legendary matches that the Midnight Express had with the Rock and Roll Express, um, I feel like 
he could have fit that mold from a wrestling standpoint with 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 Flair and Arn. You know, reuniting him and Arn Anderson in a tag team as a part of the Four Horsemen, I think, could have made a lot of sense. Um, they had history together in the Dangerous Alliance. Arn Anderson could vouch for Bobby Eaton. Um, as a member of the Four Horsemen. And it's something that I think the prospects of it to me in 2020 today um, makes me feel disappointed that they didn't go that route. Because I think Bobby Eaton, who some have argued is probably the greatest tag team wrestler of all time, um, I think he would have really excelled in the role. He may not have had the charisma like some of the other horsemen, but when it comes to the credentials of backing it up in the ring, I think he would have done a great job and, and fit into that role just nicely. Um, because let's face it, I mean, you know, Ole Anderson wasn't the greatest wrestler, um, but he was very credible as a horseman. Um, his ability to talk, I think, helped. Um, but Ole was just kind of, you know, he wasn't very flashy. Eaton's not very flashy either, but he can back it up. And, you know, at that time, he certainly could go in the ring. Um, so I think this, I think Bobby Eaton... Um, as a four horseman member in 1993 definitely would have made a lot of sense. Um, other names that were thrown out there, um, for 1993, you had, you had Bobby Eaton, you have, uh, Brian Pillman and Steve Austin as a part of the Hollywood blondes. Um, uh, Sid was making a return at the time to WCW. Um, he had a role in the horseman a couple of years prior that could have made some sense. Um, Sid, Flair, Arn, and maybe a Bobby Eaton. Maybe, you know, if, if you know, with Ole as the manager. Um, you know, Sid being the big heater, Flair being the main guy up top, and then Anderson and Eaton as a tag team. That would, that, that would have been acceptable at that time in WCW. Um, another name that almost made it, to the, the, the Paul Roma spot um, in 1993 was Tully Blanchard. Allegedly, Tully Blanchard was was uh, in the middle of a contract negotiation to return to WCW, and he was pegged for that role, and they couldn't come to an agreement on terms of a contract, and therefore talks died down, and he was no longer in the picture, and that's where they had to kind of throw Roma in at the last minute, um, giving everybody the wah, 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 wah kind of moment um, with with Paul Roma as the the fourth member of the Horsemen, um, another name who has Horseman ties that at the time in '93 it would have made sense, but it wouldn't have made sense at the same time, and that's Barry Windham. Barry Windham was kind of opposing Ric Flair. Ric Flair returned to WCW. He had his sights set on that world title. Barry Windham was the, actually, I believe he was the WCW international champion. That was when they recognized the big gold belt as the international title, um, and Barry Windham and Flair had a, had a, a rivalry going on, um, but Flair... Anderson, Ole, and introducing Barry as the fourth. I mean, you can go back to it because there's history with the Horsemen. It makes sense. It, it, it could have been one of those situations where Flair came back to re, reunite the Horsemen, and it and, and it takes him a while to get Barry on board, but eventually Barry does it. Maybe Barry turns on Pillman and Austin. Maybe they make Pillman and Austin baby faces as the Hollywood Blondes. You know what I mean? Even though they were good heels and they were really getting that heat, maybe you turn them baby face by having Wyndham turn on them and he joins back up with Flair and Anderson as members of the Horsemen. Um, 
That's something that I think would be very interesting. Another name that Tony, you know, my buddy Tony brought up on social media was Dustin Rhodes. Dustin Rhodes is an interesting name to uh, to to dissect here in in the in the Horseman conversation. Um, Dustin Rhodes had kind of done everything he could do at that time in WCW as a babyface. I feel like, and having Dustin turn and join the horsemen um, would be very reminiscent of when Barry eventually joined the horsemen, you know, years prior for Jim Crockett promotions, you know, Dustin would be like that young upstart. Um, maybe Dustin and Barry coming in as a package. You know, at the time they were except they had separated. They had split up as a team. They, they, they weren't a team anymore. They were feuding with each other off and on. And maybe you know, Flair's return to WCW to reunite the Horsemen. He somehow convinces Barry to come back, and then he convinces Barry to, you know, we got to find the fourth guy. And Barry's like, I got the guy. I know who it is. And that's when Barry can try and repair the friendship that he has with Dustin that was broken a year prior in WCW and convince Dustin to come back and come back to, you know, his side and join the four horsemen. And then you have that young stud that, you know, represents the horsemen that has some wrestling credibility being a Rhodes. And the irony in that too, that his father went to war with the horsemen for years and years. And now his son, the son of the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, joins the Four Horsemen. I think there could have been some tremendous opportunities to tell a story like that at that time in 1993. I really think so. I mean, it, it definitely would have opened the door for a Dusty return. If you think about it, Dusty Rhodes as, you know, the the returning legend to, you know, fight off his his, his old rivals, the Four Horsemen, and try and convince his son that, you know, this ain't for you. That life is not for you. You are not a horseman. You're a Rhodes. Like, they're going to use you. They're going to chew you up and spit you out. They're only, they only, you know, they only wanted you a part of the group because they see you as a threat, you know? Like, just imagine what, what kind of storytelling we could get, we could have gotten with that. Um, so those are some great suggestions regarding, um, you know, Paul Roma, his replacement in the 93 version of the horseman. Now let's talk about the 96 version of the horseman. It was mentioned Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko. They could kind of tag with Benoit. I could see Eddie. Um, I mean, he was he wasn't as established yet. Um, but you know, let's be honest. When they introduced Benoit as the fourth member of the Horsemen a year prior, when it was Flair, Anderson, Brian Pillman, and Chris Benoit, Benoit didn't really have much of a track record in WCW at that time. You saw a little bit of him here and there, but you didn't see a, a whole lot of him. And so, um, I feel like you still could have made that work if you put Eddie in the mix, if you did Flair, Arn, Benoit, and Eddie as the four. Um, I think that's something that could that, 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 that they could have worked and made happen. Um, but at the same time, Eddie was still too early on in his run in WCW. He, was, he wasn't really as established yet. So people might look at that as like, even though Eddie Guerrero's talented performer, Hall of Famer, guy could do anything in the ring in 1996, I don't think it would have been as accepted. I think he would have had to have built a resume up for a little bit longer to get to that point. Um, another name that was brought up, Dean Malenko, um, another guy, same situation too. I feel like he didn't really have enough established credibility 
uh, on television at the time, even though he was kind of a figurehead of that cruiserweight division in 1996. I just felt like as a horseman, horseman material, I feel like he would have had to have built that up um, a little more in 1996. Um, I'm trying to see some other names here. Here's an interesting name. Um, Dave Selinski. Um, <laughs> this is this was interesting. Okay, um, he felt that Roman Mongo were always corporate choices that never really fit into the horseman mold. Um, but for 1996, he would have he would have replaced Mongo with Craig Pittman, Sergeant Craig the Pitbull Pittman, kind of had like a GI Joe kind of character, and Brad Armstrong. He goes, I know odd choices for '96. He goes, shine Pittman up and then give Armstrong a Flair Jr. gimmick and team them together. A natural feud would be for, would be born between Flair and Armstrong once the Horsemen broke up. Pittman would get his leg broken by Flair as a casualty of the feud, and then he'd disappear into obscurity. So. No disrespect, Dave. I like you. You're a good guy. We chat a little bit. But I feel like if you're going to put Craig Pittman into that role in the Horseman, there needs to be an end game for him long term. Um, there needs to be something where, um, you know, you're not going to just break his leg and, you know, throw his character away into obscurity. There needs to be something. He needs to benefit from it. Um, so, but I do like your choice of Brad Armstrong. Um, not necessarily giving him a Flair Jr. type of gimmick, but. Um, Really, maybe maybe tagging him him up with Anderson, him and Arn Anderson as a team, um, I think would really complement each other very well. And Arn Anderson kind of like mentoring him in the same way that like they were kind of mentoring Benoit, um, having him mentor, um, you know, Brad Armstrong and kind of elevating Brad Armstrong to another level. Brad Armstrong, without a doubt, probably one of the the best in ring workers of all time. From a character standpoint, when the red light came on, a lot of people have said in many interviews I've read and heard that he just couldn't translate his personality backstage to the camera. Um, but as, as far as a performer goes, bell to bell in that ring, nobody could touch Brad Armstrong. He was just that good. And, you know, if you kind of shined him up a little bit and added some of that, you know, horseman pizzazz to him, you know, with the rub with Arn as a tag team, like a, like a, like an updated version of like him and like Arn and Tully, like a, like a, or Arn and Oli, like a, you know, a brain busters, Minnesota wrecking crew type team. Um, I think, I think Brad Armstrong could have been a good choice to be a four horseman. Um, I kind of like that one, to be quite honest with you. I really do. Um, the, I think the, the opportunity, the opportunities, I wouldn't say would have been endless, but I think there was a lot to grow from Brad Armstrong being a member of the four horsemen. Um, here's a name that I thought of that, um, that I, that, in 96 i think could have been a, a good fourth horseman and that's lord steven regal i think adding an international element to the four horsemen could have expanded the longevity of the horsemen and expanded their the range so to speak you know they were the horsemen were always regarded as like the symbol of excellence in wrestling you know like you can go bell to bell you can party with the best of them you're civilized classy individuals Steven Regal was like a, a, a British snob, but can wrestle. He was tough as nails. He had credibility. He can go in the ring. He had really established himself in the three years he had been in WCW at that point. So I feel like Lord Steven Regal adding an international flavor to that, that mix, um, you know, to the horsemen could have 
been very intriguing and interesting. You know, maybe tagging him up with Benoit, Benoit being Canadian and Regal being, you know, from, from England, uh, the UK, or doing Regal and Arn Anderson. That would have been an interesting combination. Um, two different two different styles of wrestling that just would really mesh well together as a team. Um, I mentioned him earlier for 93. I still think he could have been a good fit for 96 too, as well is Bobby Eaton. Bobby Eaton at the time, ironically enough, was tagging with, with Regal um, as a part of the Blue Bloods. He was the Earl Robert of Eaton. And, and they tried to, they, they tried to reinvent Bobby Eaton and give him a, a character by, you know, tagging him up with Regal and Regal trying to class him up and, and, teaching him the British way of living, so to speak. Um, maybe having Eaton kind of abandon that and ditch that in in favor of, of uh, going back to his old self, but shining up that horseman shine on him, uh, tagging up with Arn again, or even tagging up with Benoit, um, I think could have been a nice touch for Bobby Eaton in 96. But like I said to you earlier, take into account this was the early days of the, the beginning stages of the NWO. So the horseman kind of took a back seat even when Mongo showed up. So who's to say that that wouldn't happen again if any one of these guys were to have replaced Mongo in that spot? Another name you mentioned too that was mentioned on social media, Lex Luger. Lex Luger was another guy that was mentioned um, by one of our listeners here on social media, um, uh, Joe Mikos. Um, you know, Luger being... Uh, a former member of the Horsemen, Luger's character in 96 at the time was kind of riding the fence. He was friends with Sting, but people couldn't trust him. Um, he had an on-again, off-again relationship with Jimmy Hart. He had some issues with Hogan. Um, Luger and Anderson tagging up, maybe that could have worked. Um, I don't know, but... Um, you know, that's that's kind of like a last resort kind of pick um, when it comes to um, replacing Mongo for 1996 in the Four Horsemen. And, uh, you know, that about does it with our subjects this week here on the Day 5 Fanny Pack here on Kicking Out It Too. I'd like to thank you all for, for tuning in, checking us out this week. Uh, flying solo, I appreciate, the, um, I, I appreciate the patience, like I tell you all the time. Um, if you don't like that I fly solo, then let me know, and then I'll do my best to make sure I get a co-host. But, you know, the reasons why I don't have co-hosts sometimes is because scheduling issues, and sometimes it's just easier for me to get this stuff done. But I'm glad you listened. I'm glad you let me ramble on about these five random subjects in wrestling history. If you guys want to if, – if there are any subjects in wrestling history that you want to – us to discuss here in our day five fanny pack format then by all means hit us up on social media shoot us a dm on facebook or twitter and let us know what you would like us to talk about something that you know maybe we could talk about it in long form or maybe it's something that you would like to hear our opinion on but it's not dedicating a whole show to that subject it's a part of the fanny pack just let us know we'd love to hear the feedback i'm always all about the feedback so please guys by all means don't be afraid to tell me what you're feeling i don't take anything seriously uh, i'll take your opinion seriously but i won't take any criticism um to heart because you know this is a this is a this is a, a a growing process for me with this podcast it's always a, it's always a, pr a process of learning and and trying to find my groove each and every week so i want to hear your feedback want to hear your opinions um want you to be a part of it as well um so yeah hit us up on our social media and let us know what the dealio is what you like what you don't like and uh, what we can do better and hopefully i can make that happen for you each and every week here on kicking out at two and next week is the return of the blind date diaries concept as we're going to be bringing 
bringing you Wrestle War 1990 Wild Thing. The main event was Ric Flair versus Lex Luger for the WCW World Heavyweight title. You had the Steiners also taking on the Anderson brothers, Arn and Ole, for the World Tag Team titles. Freebirds versus Brian Pillman and the Z-Man for the U.S. Tag Team titles. Um, Doom, or no, I'm sorry, um, the Road Warriors taking on the Skyscrapers in a Chicago street fight. Doom made an appearance during that match. Norman the Lunatic against Cactus Jack. Kevin Sullivan and Buzz Sawyer taking on the Dynamic Dudes of Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace. And so many other great matches that were on that card. You can check that all out next week. Blind Date Diaries. Was it a good blind date? You know, I just watched that show recently. And for the first time from beginning to end. And I'll let you all know what I think about that particular blind date that was wcw wrestle war 1990 all right fanny pack is zipped up no more to talk about we will see you all next week